is the Cloud Now Podcast, your launchpad for Amazon Web Services. Welcome to the Cloud Now Podcast. My name is Michael. And my name is Andreas. We are brothers and freelancers focusing on Amazon Web Services. We do technical coaching, for example, for teams that start their journey with AWS and infrastructure bootstrapping, typically based on our infrastructure as code templates for our clients worldwide. Every other week, we discuss a topic to related to AWS here in the podcast. One of us prepares the topic and the topic is not known to the other one. So, Andreas, what's the subject today? Michael, today we will talk about different storage options on AWS. So we will compare them to give you yeah, an idea of what options are available and when you need to come up with an architecture to decide for the best option that you have. So this is episode number 24 and we are recording this on July 28 in 2020. So before we start, I have one question for Andreas and then we dive into the topic. So Andreas, what's going on? What are you working on at the moment? Yeah, Michael, um, at the moment, um, we are working on releasing the third chapter for the video course Rapid Docker on AWS. So uh, a short reminder, Rapid Docker on AWS is already available as an ebook, and we are currently working on delivering a video course as well. The first two chapters, so around 50% are already uh, available, and uh, now it's up to deliver chapter three and four. And chapter three is currently uh, in recording, so we are preparing slides, examples, recording the video, and so on. Um, so, but if you already want to start with reading the book and going to the first two chapters, uh, you can already get Rapid Docker on AWS, um, the video course as well. Uh, you will find links and all relevant information in the show notes. Great. So that sounds um, very interesting and I'm looking forward to work on uh, exactly this uh, topic. So Andreas, um, let's dive into the storage options on AWS. So what different options do you have for us? Yeah, so I think the thing is, when you design an architecture uh, for AWS, um, the storage part uh, is uh, most often a very critical part, especially when you have workloads uh, where you have specific needs for the I.O., um, um, yeah, system on AWS. So we will cover today um, Instant Store. We will talk about the Elastic Block Storage, EBS. We'll talk about the Elastic File System, EFS. We will also have a look at FSX, the file system for Windows File Server service. And last but not least, the Simple Storage Service, S3. Um, we will compare them, give you an introduction uh, when it's worth to look into uh, those services when designing an architecture because there's one spoiler I can make now. Um, there are pros and cons for most of those services and in many use cases you have the option to choose between uh, multiple options so then it comes to what um, yeah what pays off for your workload. Yeah I see so as often so there is not like the best solution there are probably like a, a few solutions and then you have to pick the best one for your scenario. Um, so I understand that we are not going to talk about databases. Is this correct? Yes. So databases is something um, we have uh, summarized in uh, a blog post as well. So you can check that out. But now it's uh, bare metal um, storage systems. Uh, so no databases involved here. 
Uh, and another thing that I want to um, state at the beginning is um, that this podcast episode um, also comes with a blog post. And the blog post appeared on the Cloudcraft blog um, first. So Cloudcraft is a tool that you can use to draw diagrams for AWS architectures. And I think uh, it's fair to say that those are the best looking uh, diagrams that you can come up with um, when uh, creating architectures for AWS. Yeah, you'll find a link to um, the original blog post in the show notes as well, because it might be interesting to read to uh, some of the details later. So check that out. Uh, and also bookmark the Cloud Cloudcraft blog. Uh, it is definitely worth it. Okay, Andrea. So um, you mentioned that we have like multiple options. So what's your like, or how do you uh, start looking um, and analyzing your requirements? So what are the like the important um, factors that I have to consider when I choose a storage solution? Good question, Michael. So I think there are a few questions that I would start with when deciding for a storage option. So first question is, what are the durability and availability requirements for your workload? Um, this is an important question. Next one is, how much data do you need to store? So are we talking gigabyte, terabyte, uh, or even more than that? Um, what's the baseline and burst I.O. throughput required by your workload? So this is a very interesting question, helping you to decide uh, which storage option fits your needs. What's the interface your workload expects to read and write data? A file system? Does your workload offer an F3 integration or can you build your own? And does the workload rely on low latency when accessing data from storage? And what level of latency is tolerable here? So those are very important questions that you should have answers to before you really start uh, looking into your options, because uh, otherwise um, it's really hard to decide for one option here. Okay, cool. So, so let's start with Instant Store. So Instant Store is an interesting option. Um, it is basically storage that is um, that lives on the same hardware that your virtual machine does. Um, basically, that means um, yeah, you have the machine in the data center, and on that machine you have uh, the CPU, the memory, and the storage. And um, this is Instant Store. Um, so Instant Store um, has two important uh, upsides. It is you have very low latency to access the block storage and high throughput. So that is um, what is interesting here. Um, what's a little bit, um, um, or what can be a little bit um, irritating at the beginning is how do you get Instant Store? <laughs> so where do you where do you get that option from? So basically, Instant Store um, is attached to your virtual machine depending on the instance type that you choose when launching an EC2 instance. Um, so the instance type also comes, or some instance type comes with Instant Store as well. Um, I want to give you a few examples here, Mike. So an M5 large instance, for example, comes with two CPU cores, eight gigabyte of memory, uh, but it does not provide any instance store. Um, but there is an, another instance family, and the instance type M5D large 
comes with the same CPU and memory specification, but also provides a 75 gigabyte of an SSD. Um, so you can often find um, instance types from other instance families that have the same CPU and memory configuration, but then come with additionally additional instance store. And on the older instance types, um, we had uh, specific instance families that only uh, that provided those instance store uh, options as well. Uh, okay, so that is um, the upsides of using instance store. It is how do you get it, but uh, what are the problems when using instance store? So the problem with instance store is um, AWS calls it ephemeral storage. Uh, which means you should not rely on uh, instance store as a persistent data store because the uh, instance store uh, volumes have the same lifecycle than your EC2 instance, which means if you stop and then later start your EC2 instance, for example, uh, the storage will be gone. So all the data will be lost. Uh, so whenever you need EC2 instance and uh, this appears for some reason, your data will disappear as well. Um, so that is important um, to know. So what does that mean? So if you want to use instance store because of the high throughput and low latency, you need to make sure that uh, your system replicates the data, for example, to other EC2 instances, or you do snapshots or something of your data. And um, typical use cases for that are, for example, distributed data stores like Elasticsearch, Kafka, um, where the system itself is taking care of replicating the data among multiple nodes in the cluster. Or, of course, you can use uh, Instance Store just for temporary data, for caches, batch processing. Basically, whenever you can um, refetch the data from some other system um, when needed. So that is, of course, another interesting option here. Yeah, so I I, I can agree. Uh, and also I, I want to like add here that it is like if you are like running like typical web applications on AWS or enterprise applications, then chances that you need Instance Store are very low. So I usually don't use Instance Store very often. So it's really in the special cases. Um, and for example, you mentioned Elasticsearch and Kafka, all those um, services are available as managed services. So in those cases, you can also uh, just uh, get the whole service from AWS. So yeah, basically what I wanted to say is that uh, Instance Store is nice, but um, it is not um, a big deal if you never used it because it's really, I think it's it's a kind of, I think it's kind of niche. I mean, there are definitely workloads that, that use it and that require it, but uh, like typical applications, they don't need Instance Store and it's uh, yeah not... Not used too often, I I think. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not for uh, beginners, and it's also not the default <laughs> storage system that is attached to an EC2 instance. That's correct. Uh, which brings me um, to the default uh, block storage for AWS, which is the Elastic Block Storage Service (EBS). Um, so I'm thinking of EBS as a storage area network. So your EC2 instance, the virtual machine is connected to a storage system over wire, over network. And um, typically, um, there is a one-to-one -one relationship between an EC2 instance and an EBS volume. And uh, what you have to keep in mind when thinking about EBS and adding that to your architecture is there is network in between. 
Um, so what's the uh, what what's the what's the thing here? So the network in between adds a little bit of latency. So even if most EC2 instances are uh, optimized for EBS usage, which means they have a dedicated network uh, connectivity to the storage system, still you have a little bit of latency in between uh, compared to instance store. And um, the other thing that you have to keep in mind is um, that the network cap capacity of your EC2 instance and um, the EBS volume um, are both a possible bottleneck for transferring data between your EC2 instance and the volume, the EBS volume. Um, so that is what is important to keep in mind, um, the network in between. Uh, on the other hand, EBS comes with a lot of advantages. So I think the most important advantage is the life cycle of the EBS volume is independent of the EC2 instance. So you can stop or even terminate, delete your virtual machine And this does not affect the data stored on the volume. Um, so you can uh, therefore consider the EBS volume as persistent storage. So this is a um, key differentiator um, to the instance store. Also, EBS replicates data among multiple disks automatically. Um, AWS says they aim for a durability of 99.8% over a year. Um, so which means your data is not only stored on one disk, it is replicated on multiple disks out of the box. And uh, another interesting feature that EBS comes with is um, you can create snapshots of volumes, incremental snapshots, and um, those snapshots are then uh, stored um, among multiple availability zones. Um, so that is another very cool feature. Um, What is important um, to know about uh, the limitations is <clears throat> we talked about the maximum throughput that depends on the EC2 instance type and the EBS configuration. Um, but what is also important is you provision the storage capacity um, of the volume up front. You can change it later, but that requires you... Um, to yeah, have a short downtime. You cannot do that on the fly. Um, so provisioning that uh, from the beginning typically means you over-provision your storage capacity to avoid um, blind planned downtimes later. And the other important thing is um, uh, uh, EBS replicates data among multiple disks, but it does not replicate your data among multiple availability zones. Um, so that is... Uh, often something you have to think about when you persist data and when you basically also need to access that data uh, for your application uh, to be fully functioning. Um, so this is the instance The instance um, that is connected to the EBS volume. Both are running in a single availability zone and the SLA that AWS provides for that is uh, an uptime of 90%. <laughs> so that is what AWS um, promises to deliver uh, and oftentimes that might not be sufficient so if your application really relies on EBS and being able to access the data on the volume you need to find a way to replicate your data to another availability zone and unfortunately that is not always uh, so easy to do so you could use uh, EBS snapshots um, problem here is um, we don't have any guarantees on the 
um, recovery time objective. So we don't have any uh, guarantees on how long it takes for AWS to um, create a new volume based on a snapshot. So yeah, you could, uh, for example, replicate your data uh, on your own onto a second machine. Um, yeah, but that's something we have to think about when using EBS volumes. Um, okay, Andrea. So I have, um, um, I think I have three comments. <laughs> Um, so the first comment is that um, you mentioned that you can attach an EBS volume to a single EC2 instance, and there's some like innovation going on in this field um, because AWS now allows uh, for like very specific instance types to uh, that you can attach the same volume to multiple instances, which is um, pretty nice. The problem with that is that you have to manage on the software. Like basically, if you have one machine that only writes uh, and all the others only read then there's no big problems. But if you like think about that multiple machines are going to write on the same volume, then you will end up with a kind of chaos and you have to orchestrate and ensure that they don't override each other. Um, so that it's not, I think it's not easy to use and um, there will be some applications that can benefit from it. But um, yeah, so that's just like a note that there's something um, going on that, that might improve that situation. Yeah, correct, Michael. But uh, one thing I want to ask you, I've read about that as well, that you can attach multiple machines to the same volume now. But I think, uh, am I right? This is only possible within one availability zone, yeah, correct? that's right. So it does not solve the uh, availability zone problem, um, but uh, uh, still sometimes it, 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 it helps, uh, but it, it, doesn't, yeah, it doesn't replicate um, across availability zones. That's right. Um, yeah, and the... The other problem that you mentioned with restoring EBS snapshots, so maybe I can like add some details here. If you um, create a volume and um, based on a snapshot, AWS does copy the data onto the volume asynchronously. So whenever you uh, kind of access a block on the device that is not yet restored, then AWS will fetch the data. So this basically means that you have very poor performance um, at the first, like, and then, as you mentioned, the undefined number of minutes or hours, um, because this replication process can take some time. Um, but there's also some um, innovation going on in this space. Um, so there is a way to kind of speed up the restore process um, if you uh, pay additional an, an additional fee. So that, that can also help to reduce the gap a little bit. Um, but yeah, still, it's a challenge to kind of back up and restore your EBS volumes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, I think that the most uh, thing, the most the thing that I worry here about the most is, when really your recovery strategy from an AWS outage relies on restoring big amounts of data from EBS snapshots. I um, I doubt that when all AWS customers in that region start to do so, um, you will probably have to wait very long for that to completely finish and restore all your data. That is what I'm. Um, thinking of here so i think that is something to keep in mind when when building architectures um, where you have to fulfill uh, very hard um, availability requirements yeah yeah i see yeah okay uh, you had a third comment michael um my third comment um i uh, my third comment was about uh, like you mentioned that if you like resize a volume and resize basically means you increase the size. So there's no way to, to uh, decrease the size of a volume. Uh, you mentioned mm -hmm. that there will be a short downtime. 
And I'm not 100% sure if that is correct or if this is also possible to resize without a downtime. I, I think it depends a little bit on the file system. Yes, you are correct. So it depends uh, definitely on the file system and it also depends on the instance types, whether this supports um, elastic volumes. Uh, okay, yeah, so this is um, instance store and um, EBS, elastic block storage. So both options are block storage options, which means you have to define your own file system on top. So basically your operating system is doing that for you. Um, so you choose the file system of your choice and then um, you're writing blocks of data to those storage systems. The next uh, system that we want to talk about is a little bit different. Um, it is the Elastic File System, EFS. Um, EFS is based on a protocol that is now older than 35 years, Michael. <laughs> I, I looked that up. That is really, that is, I would say this is computer and internet history. So NFS, the Network File System. Um, and NFS allows you to connect multiple machines to the same file system via the network. Yeah, and so like maybe like a fun fact is that it was invented before I was born. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not sure if that is a <laughs> if that's a good sign to for technology, but uh, but yeah, of course, it, on the other side, uh, it should be. It should be stable, yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, but yeah, but I think it's uh, it's it's not obsolete. Uh, it's still an interesting um, system. So what what about EFS? Um, so EFS is a, I would say it's really a cloud a cloud uh, native service. Um, if you want to have the password here, so um, because the storage capacity grows on demand, you only pay for the storage that you use. So this is different to EBS and also different to Instant Store, where you basically pay for the storage that you provision up front. Um, so that is great. And we can adjust the maximum I.O. throughputs to our needs. Um, there is provision capacity, which means you can get a stable capacity for reading and writing from your Elastic file system. And there's also the other option, the cheaper option, which is burstable, burstable performance, depending on the storage size. Also, and that is a, a first here, is that data is replicated among multiple availability zones by default. So you don't have to care about what happens if one availability zone is no longer reachable because of an outage in the data center, because the service itself replicates the data and um, you can still access that data even if one availability zone fails and this is working out of the box um, um, the nfs um, file system um, protocol in between um, so that is really easy to use so i would say efs is is um, a perfect thing to choose when you have multiple machines that have to access the same file system the same data stored on a file system so a few typical examples when uh, I'm using EFS. So a lot of content management systems out there, so WordPress, um, what have you, um, require uh, a, a file system. And as I want to um, spread my workloads on multiple machines, I'm using EFS to have a shared file system here. But it's also interesting for CI, CD applications like Jenkins, GitLab, um, where you have to store um, 
data in file systems as well. Uh, many, many legacy web applications require a file system. Also, a lot of enterprise applications that I've seen require a shared file system. So um, this is um, a good choice whenever you need to store um, files on, on disk, but you want to share uh, that file system with many machines. There's only one thing that you have to keep in mind. EFS is not really designed for latency-critical workloads. Um, so the protocol uh, NFS um, is really causing additional latency. So uh, I think it's not a good idea to use it for anything like a database, like system, or whenever you have a system where really latency to um, the data to the files is critical, then EFS is not a good choice. Yeah, so I, I, I was surprised recently because this is also kind of the rule of thumb that, that I use when, when thinking about EFS that, okay, for small files, like many small files, or, or at least like if there's a high frequency of operations, then, then you might be uh, running into issues. But then I learned that um, like when we talked about messaging on AWS in the, like the, the episode before, um, that Amazon MQ, which is the hosted ActiveMQ service, um, uses by default, uh, if you run the, the system in high availability mode, um, uses EFS for persistence. And they also clearly document that this will, like the limitations, like the system can only process 80 messages, I think, per second or something like this. Um, but still they use this as a persistence layer for a, I mean, it's not a database system, but it's a like a messaging system. So if you like, if your requirements are low enough in terms of writes per um, second, then it, it might still be an option. And and it, it looks like that 80 messages per second, which, I mean, very like uh, simply calculated 80 write operations per second, maybe uh, 160 or something like this, um, is enough um, and can be satisfied with EFS. So that, that was interesting for me because I have never like expected something like this um, to be created by AWS uh, using EFS as a storage uh, layer. Yeah, on the other side, we have seen many scenarios where we really had problems with the latency caused by EFS. So we had big GitLab uh, installations or uh, other systems where they store a lot of files and needed to access them. Um, we heard and have seen uh, problems with that. But yeah, I think it really depends on the workloads and I think it's necessary to do some performance tests uh, when you go with EFS. Yeah, yeah. and um, I'm not sure um, if I uh, if I just missed this or if you haven't mentioned it, but um, EFS only works with Linux. So you cannot mount it from Windows. I'm not sure if that was like highlighted. Um, so yeah, I missed that. Yeah, that's an important uh, restriction. Yeah, but that's because of the the file system protocol, the NFS for, uh, version 4, uh, is only available on Linux machines. Um, so you can only mount it from there. Yeah, good point, Michael. Um, on the other hand, um, uh, it is available. Um, you can mount it over uh, a private network, for example, a VPN or Direct Connect connection. Um, so you can, in theory, access NFS from on-premises if you really want to. Um, which definitely will increase latency <laughs> and more, but yeah, but that's that's possible. Yeah. So what's next? I think um, EFSX is next. Yeah. So file system. So there are two. So EFSX basically means that AWS does provide or wants to provide multiple managed file system uh, services. 
uh, under the same umbrella. So at the moment, um, there is a um, file system for Windows File Server, and there is um, um, the other option, let me try to remember, ah, yeah, FSX for Luster. Uh, so those, those are the two uh, options at the moment, and probably or maybe AWS will announce other managed uh, shared file systems in the future. So I had a look at um, the file system for Windows File Server uh, a little bit deeper. So I went to uh, the documentation and um, asked a few support questions, uh, played around with it a little bit um, to basically find out about the limitations and um, the, the special things about uh, that service. Uh, some some disclaimer here. Uh, I'm not a Windows and Microsoft guy. I, I have almost zero experience uh, with operating Windows servers. Um, so yeah, so so keep that in mind when I'm talking about it here. So, but what's important from a storage uh, option point of view here is um, EFS is a little bit similar to FSX um, because um, both are shared file systems uh, that you can use over network. Um, however, uh, file system for Windows file servers can be used from Windows, Linux, macOS, and so on, because the protocols they use uh, are available on all those um, systems. So that is maybe interesting here. So it might not only be for Windows servers, you can even use it from Linux servers as well. And a few differences between FSX and EFS. Um, so basically, uh, FSX for Windows File Server is uh, AWS manages Windows File Servers for you. So they configure them, they monitor them, they maintain them, and you get access to, to a Windows File Server system. Um, you get, um, there are two options. There is a multi-availability zone option that you can use, but it's not uh, enabled by default. So... Um, you can deploy a second server, a standby server, and then you get um, multi-ASAT deployments in at least uh, at, in two availability zones. So um, the SLA that you get out of that is 99.9% uh, .9 availability. And then um, this FSX um, replicates the data to the standby server automatically. If you compare that with, e with EFS, the data is replicated um, to at least three different availability zones and it comes um, with an availability objective of 99.99%. Uh, so there's uh, uh, a, a, uh, a fourth nine here. Um, that might be a difference. So if you have an availability requirement, um, that's something you should um, keep in mind. Yeah, so if if I think about the uh, like uh, file system for Windows, it's kind of an RDS. I mean, it's they, they, it can be like a single instance or it can be two, but it's basically one machine, if I understand it correctly. Uh, and like EFS is really some, a distributed system that can. And I also I think like I'm not sure if you mentioned this, but uh, for Windows file system, you have a storage uh, maximum, like there's a limit. And EFS is, is, is something that grows with your, uh, like, you can, like, add uh, files uh, along the way and without worrying about the maximum amount of uh, storage that you can put into EFS. So that that's kind of like, like I, I usually think about EFX as, as like, uh, like an RDS instance, but it does not offer uh, MySQL or something. It offers, like, a Samba uh, kind of uh, functionality. 
Uh, not sure if that really is how it works, but this is how it feels from looking at the system from the outside. Yeah, correct. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, yeah. So another interesting difference between FSX and EFS, um, if we want to compare those two, is that um, FSX comes with an interesting feature um, of the Windows File Server, which is data deduplication. So when you have, for example, when you store user directories uh, with FSX, um, the thing here is if many people store the exact same file within their directory, within their personal directory, um, FSX will only store that once on disk. So that is something, a great feature that you can use um, to reduce the needed storage. Um, so that is maybe, that's something that... that um, that I was uh, stumbling upon when, when going through the details here. Um, so I think the same that is true for EFS is true for FSX as well. If you really have uh, a latency-critical workload, the overhead of the protocol to synchronize the different nodes that write to the file system uh, is adding additional latency that you probably cannot tolerate here if it's really latency-critical. Okay. Okay, last but not least, Michael, uh, let's talk about simple storage service. So um, this is a service that is different, <laughs> different to the four options that we talked about so far. The, the difference here is um, AWS offers a REST API that is accessible from the internet. And this REST API allows us to read and write data from S3. So it is a service that you can use over internet. You can use it for public data, but you can also use it only from your internal network. Um, for example, when you use VPC and then VPC endpoint, um, uh, it works for, for both options for many, many different scenarios. Um, the, the cool thing about a simple storage service is it distributes your data among multiple availability zones and the storage capacity and also the read-write capacity scales on demand. So uh, this is really the most cloud-native service to store your data that you can get on AWS, I would say. Um, because if you compare it uh, with EFS, you cannot even um, provision any throughput here. That works out of the box. AWS is responsible for, uh, for doing that. And um, that is an interesting uh, thing here to simple with the simple storage service. Um, what is important to to think about is it comes with a REST API. That means this is not something that you can use as a file system on your machine. It's also not intended to be used as a file system um, because it's an object store. Um, and maybe we can quickly discuss what's the difference between a block storage and an object storage, Michael. Michael, can you do that? Yeah, sure. So like if you like if you work with an object storage, the like the 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 finest granular way of accessing your data is the object, so you can get the whole file, basically, no matter how big that is. Um, and with a block storage you can get a specific block. So you can get like if you change a file, for example, in with an object store you have to upload the whole file again. With a block storage, you only have to modify the block where the data is changed and you can leave all the other blocks untouched. And this is obviously uh, way more efficient if you change files rapidly. 
So for example, if you append uh, data to a log file, like a text, like access log of your Apache uh, log files, and you synchronize this file with an S3 bucket, you will upload the file every time you synchronize and like the whole file. And with a block storage uh, appending lines, it would be much easier to implement and much more efficient. So you don't have to write the whole file every time you only write like the new blocks. Um, so th that's kind of the major difference here. Um, yeah, the good news is that you don't really, like if you use the block storage, you, you don't really notice that it's all handled for you usually. Um, so it, it's, yeah, it's, it's easy to use, but still there's a lot of like efficiency under the hood. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that is the, the, the thing to think about here. So a few use cases for S3. So I already said it's really a service that you can use for many, many different uh, scenarios. So a few, a few ones. So I'm using S3 to back up my MacBook Air. So I have a backup software that writes my backup encrypted to an S3 bucket. Um, second example, hosting a static website. So cloudonout.io is our website and our blog and it runs on s3 and cloudfront in front of that so you can do web hosting with s3 um, you can exchange data for analytics machine learning between different organizations so that is something that we see quite often that different organizations use s3 to share data to have a process in place an etl process maybe um, where one delivers um, data and the other one picks up the data to analyze the data to do machine learning on the data and then um, deliver back the results for example um, and we use s3 to store snapshots from Elasticsearch, from um, business applications and so on um, you can use s3 to store user generated content so very simple example um, the profile picture that your users upload uh, from their mobile devices, for example. So many, many different uh, scenarios here for using S3. They all have in common that it is very easy to access uh, S3 because you have that public available REST interface that you can use to upload and download your data. And that is, I think, why S3 is very popular. Yeah, so maybe one thing here, so we talked about that. So it is it is possible to use S3 as a storage system in, in more and more uh, software, um, also from third parties or open source projects. But if you really have a legacy application uh, you mo that relies on a file system, um, that does probably not qualify for storing data on S3 here. So that is, that is when you do um, lift and shift migrations to AWS, um, probably using S3 is not an option. Um, but, but that might change in the future. Okay, great. So I think we are through the list of, of different options. And um, you have created a, like, a great like, comparison table that um, our listeners can find when they click on the link in the show notes to the blog post. Um, because I think it's very hard to like, summarize a table in, in the podcast here. So you're not going to do that, I guess. Um, so is there anything else to add, Andreas? Or are we through the storage options? So, Michael, maybe one, a few things that I want to mention from the comparison table is um, the storage costs is an important uh, criteria that we can compare. So the cheapest service to store data on AWS, when you just look at what does it cost to store the data, not to access the data, is S3. And the most expensive one is EFS. And um, 
Um, so the difference is here more than 10x. Yeah. So this is uh, really interesting. Um, the the different cost options uh, for storing data that might also uh, this is also an important thing to to consider when choosing a service. Of course, um, we discussed um, that uh, instance store and EBS are only available in single ASET modus, which means you can only get that in a single availability zone. Um, this is also uh, something um, that is important. And um, also, it's interesting to have a look. It's always interesting to have a look at the limitations. So what is the maximum throughput that you can get uh, for the different options? Because here, um, there are also important differences. Yeah, so um, I would say have a look at the uh, comparison table. And um, one more thing at the end, Michael, after we have gone through the different uh, storage options i came all, i came up with a decision tree and the decision tree asks different questions uh, so the question questions are who needs to access the storage service how does a typical file access pattern look like um, what's your durability requirement does your application offer an f3 integration and which operation operating system is used and by answering those questions, you go through the decision tree and find uh, at least um, a direction for uh, which storage service fits your needs best. Any other questions about storage on AWS, Michael, or is, is that um, everything you wanted to know? Yeah, I think that's that's all I need to know, and and that's probably all that 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 is needed to to make the decision uh, and choose the right option. So thanks very much for um, like uh, providing all this information to me and to the listeners. So yeah, I think we can we can close this, Andreas. Or um, is there something that needs to be added? Yeah, the only thing I want to um, say at the end of the podcast episode is um, please um, when you listen to this podcast episode make sure that you have subscribed to the whole show wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure that you do not miss our future episodes also please recommend um, this podcast to a, to a friend um, to spread the word about it and um, yeah let us know um, if you like this episode, send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or by email. Yeah, great. That sounds um, that sounds like a good idea. And also, if you uh, have like the ability to write a review or to um, like uh, add stars like uh, to our show, that that is highly appreciated as well, and kind of a big motivation for us to continue here as well as your feedback. So. Thank you, Andreas. Uh, thanks for preparing the, the episode and, 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 and providing all those insights. Um, and um, I guess we can uh, close this here and say goodbye. And we will see you in two weeks. Yeah, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.